Uh, as summer winds down, it does uh, make me nostalgic uh, for all things summer. And uh, this week I was thinking about uh, my first summer job. Uh, you learn a lot in your first job in life, and I'd like to share uh, one thing I learned. My first summer job was working at a warehouse uh, that was operated by the Michigan Blueberry Growers Association. Uh, that means it was uh, uh, owned by a group of blueberry producers in, uh, over in the Muskegon area. And uh, our job was to receive all of the blueberries that they had picked uh, during the day. Uh, we would weigh them, give them credit for them, and then we would ship them out the back door to different fruit freezers and processing plants. Uh, that was how the plan was supposed to work. Uh, we had about 40 different growers who would bring their fruit to our warehouse, and uh, they would come at all different times. And in fact, it was a great summer job because there was time when there was nothing to do. Uh, if there was no grower there bringing their fruit in, then you were just waiting for someone to arrive. And so one of my industrious co-workers decided that they would put a basketball hoop uh, up in the warehouse so that we could shoot baskets, play horse, play basketball we were, while we were waiting uh, for growers to come in. Uh, that worked well for several weeks, I should say, until uh, one day one of our farmers, we'll call him Joe, uh, pulled in. Uh, Joe was what is known as an angry farmer. Um, <laughs> Joe liked to, to chew people out. Uh, uh, actually, I worked there a number of years, and uh, it was not until about my 10th summer uh, that Joe yelled at me about not having something, and, that, and I stood my ground in front of him, and then he kind of smiled and walked away, and I realized it's all a game uh, to Joe. Uh, but I didn't know that as a 15-year-old uh, high school sophomore. And uh, when Joe pulled in, he did not get the attention as quickly as he uh, thought that he ought to. And so Joe walked over to the basketball hoop, and uh, the warehouse had two-by-fours bracing the wall, and he hauled up those, grabbed the basketball hoop, ripped it off the wall uh, without a word, threw it down on the ground, and then he used several words. Uh, that I don't use to this day uh, to explain uh, how things ought to operate inside uh, the Blueberry Warehouse. Uh, it was at that point that I learned an important truth, uh, that just because the timing of someone's arrival is uncertain uh, does not mean that it is not possible and necessary to be prepared. Uh, just because the timing is uncertain does not mean that it is possible and even necessary to be prepared. Uh, this is something that Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 24. And uh, Pastor Chris started this chapter last week and did an incredible job uh, introducing this passage and beginning Jesus' answer to two questions uh, that the disciples had. Uh, really, the disciples thought they were asking one question. Uh, but Jesus, and with the benefit of history, we see they're ask, really asking two separate questions. Uh, in Matthew 24, if you look back at the beginning of the chapter, you'll see that Jesus and the disciples were walking through the temple, uh, and the disciples pointed out how magnificent the temple was. Uh, and they said these buildings, they're gold, full splendor. They're, uh, in fact, having visited Israel this spring, uh, it is still with pride that our tour guide would describe how magnificent a Herod's temple was and the the expanse of the courtyard that it was, uh, it was actually a, a little reminiscent of this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. 
Uh, but Jesus told his disciples, everything that you see here is going to come down. And in fact, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This temple will be destroyed. And this led the disciples to ask what they thought was one question, but was in reality two. Uh, they said, Jesus, tell us when these things will be, when the temple will be destroyed. And then secondly, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Uh, in the disciples' mind, this was all one event, uh, that there would be a time when the temple would be destroyed, and that's when Jesus would return, uh, that he would come, and it would be the sign of the end of the age. Uh, for them, this was a singular moment, uh, but their question revealed two misunderstandings. Uh, one is that the destruction of the temple uh, and the return of Christ would be close in time. That's what they thought, but that was not the case. Uh, that temple was destroyed uh, in 70 A.D., uh, before uh, this generation of people uh, left uh, the earth. Uh, but Jesus' return was yet to come, and uh, the disciples did not see that, uh, which should probably give us all humility uh, about thinking we know exactly what God is going to do. Uh, but there was a second misunderstanding that the disciples' question revealed. Uh, and I believe that their question revealed that they believed that they could serve Christ better if they just had a little bit more information, maybe some inside information. Uh, if they could know when Christ was going to return, uh, it would give urgency to their actions, uh, clarity to what is most important. If they just had a little bit more information, then they could serve Christ better. You know, I understand that intent. Uh, I know why I would want to know, even if I was in their shoes. Uh, but there is a question of whether that information, that inside information, is necessary for obedience and following Christ. And in fact, I'll suggest uh, that what this passage teaches is that uh, that inside information is not necessary. Uh, the reality is that as I look back on my life, I many times have asked Jesus for, uh, for inside information. Uh, I have prayed for God to make things clear when faced with significant decisions. I've prayed for God to, to reveal his will. Uh, I've done it when been considering new jobs, uh, considering relationships, uh, when purchasing a home, purchasing a car. Uh, I've asked God to make clear when to have children and when to stop have, having children. He's answered that one, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> We've prayed about where to send our kids to school. Uh, we've prayed about where to send some of our kids to college. Uh, I prayed about where to go to seminary. Uh, I prayed all of these things. God, make it clear. Give us peace. Show us your will. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking God for direction and discernment unless, unless there is an unstated expectation uh, that says, God, if you will give me a peek behind the curtain, then I will really be able to trust you. And I fear that sometimes that is the case. We say, God, I, I want to know what I ought to do, and I'd like you to make it clear and vivid and, and show me and, and you know, reveal, I'll lay out a fleece and you'll, you'll show me what I ought to do because then I can know that I can trust you. Then I can step forward confidently. 
Um, if that is your expectation uh, in your life, uh, that uh, giving a, a, a glimpse of the future, uh, giving certainty, uh, will enable you to serve Christ better or to trust him more, uh, I would suggest that you may be disappointed by the passage uh, that we're going to study today. Uh, because Jesus, uh, Jesus' response to the disciples' question uh, reveals that, he, that uh, we have everything that we need to obey him fully and completely, uh, but it is often less than we would like to have. Uh, really, he is in line with a consistent teaching of Scripture. Uh, for instance, Hebrews 11, which says that faith, that thing that, that uh, connects us to God and gives us entry into his family and forgiveness of sin, that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not yet seen. Uh, while Jesus shares much about the future, he does not give, nor does he promise a glimpse of the future so that I can trust him. He just asks me to trust him. Uh, and that's where we'll begin our text uh, today. Uh, the disciples ask the question, uh, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Uh, and Jesus continues his answer. We'll begin in verse uh, 36. Uh, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Uh, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Uh, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage uh, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Uh, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Uh, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in the part of the night that the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And I imagine the disciples saying, well, how can we be, be prepared? How can we be ready? And Jesus answers in the second paragraph. He says, who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, ah, my master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants, and he eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you when it is clear. Uh, we thank you for when it gives us reason to study and to dig and try to discern. Uh, the truth about you and about 
uh, your plans. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning and that we would hear from your spirit uh, through your word. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, this, this passage breaks into two paragraphs. Uh, one, uh, to be honest, has several, raises several theological questions, some of which are probably uh, in your mind even as we speak. Questions about uh, how Jesus, if he is God's son, cannot know the future. Uh, perhaps about the, the nature of the rapture, uh, or how Jesus can be compared uh, to a thief coming in the night. Uh, and we're going to consider each of those uh, in these three illustrations that Jesus gives of his returning in turn. Uh, in the second paragraph, uh, Jesus, I believe, is answering the question, how does one prepare for something uh, or for someone uh, when one does not know uh, the timing of their arrival? And in fact, uh, tipping my hand, I'm going to suggest that Jesus is saying, uh, you can be completely prepared without knowledge uh, of when he will return. Uh, but first, uh, the first question that I would say uh, it kind of hits you as you read it. It's, it's striking. Uh, in fact, uh, there are some ancient copies of the Bible from the early centuries after Christ that omit uh, verse 36 or parts of it uh, because uh, folks believe that they, it, when folks are writing Scripture, they said, this just doesn't seem right. How can we who believe that Jesus is God's Son and possessing all the qualities of deity, uh, including being all-knowing, how could Jesus say, no one knows, not even the angels and not even the Son, but the Father only, the day and hour of his return? Uh, the answer to this question is challenging. It's wrapped up in the mystery of the incarnation. Uh, the, our uh, belief that Scripture clearly teaches that God became human in Christ. Uh, John 10.30 says, I and my Father are one. Uh, telling us that Jesus uh, and the Father, uh, they share a, a same nature. Uh, in John 5, verse 18, even the Pharisees recognized that Jesus' teaching revealed that he was making himself equal with the Father. Uh, and so on the one hand, we have uh, our belief that Jesus uh, is divine. He is God. And as God uh, possesses all of the quality that are inherent uh, to the divine nature. Uh, but on the other hand, in this verse, we have him saying that there is something that he does not know, uh, something significant, uh, the day and hour of his uh, return. How can this be? Pastor Chris will be back next week. No, just kidding. Uh, uh, just, just checking, uh, if you're paying attention there. Uh, it is difficult, and to be honest, the church through the centuries has struggled with how to understand and to put uh, these two things that Scripture clearly says together. And to be honest, the church has done a better job at finding the bad ways to say it uh, than finding a, a simple and clear way to express something that is mysterious uh, but true of God. Uh, one of those bad ways uh, that we hear sometimes is people will say that, that Jesus in his humanity did not know when he would return, uh, but in his divinity, because he was God, then he still knew. Uh, but he's speaking as a human in this case, but there are other times where he speaks and does things uh, as God. Um, uh, 
this treats Jesus, unfortunately, as if he was uh, schizophrenic, that he had a uh, split personality. For folks of my generation or older, you uh, remember the movie Sybil? Yes, it still freaks Jackie out to this day uh, that it was. Uh, this split personality treats Jesus as if he has two different persons residing in him that are unaware from each other. They're, they're divorced from each other. Uh, but the wonder of the cross is that God and human together uh, accomplished our redemption. Uh, that it's not, uh, sometimes I'm doing something divinely and sometimes I'm doing something as human. Jesus was always one person. Uh, he was unified, simple in his nature, uh, but possessing uh, both a divine nature and a human nature. And so uh, we should never say he did this as a human, as if he was not doing it also as God the Son. And we should never say that he did this as God the Son and then he left behind his humanity because he was always human and it was necessary for him to be the sacrifice uh, for our sins. Uh, so how do we put these passages together? Uh, I believe the, the key is something that we read in John chapter 8, uh, verse 28. Uh, you can turn over there uh, if you would like to see it firsthand. John 8, uh, 28. Uh, Jesus says uh, in the end of that verse, uh, or the whole verse, it says, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority uh, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus is specifically talking about uh, his future sacrifice and his submission to the Father uh, in going to the cross. Uh, but in that statement, I do nothing on my authority, we see something that is crucial about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Uh, Jesus says, I don't do things, I don't do anything in this earth uh, on my own authority. Uh, that Jesus is expressing his submission and humility before the Father. Uh, when we consider uh, how can Jesus not know the day of his return, uh, the, way, the better way to say it is that Jesus voluntarily restricts the use of some of his attributes because he is submitting to the Father. He does not exercise them on his own authority. Uh, maybe you say, Ken, I don't think that made it any simpler uh, or easier. That still seems kind of complex. And I understand that. The idea of voluntarily restricting the use of an attributes is a, is a strange concept. Uh, to be honest, the closest I can come to illustrate it is uh, uh, when I think of a, a father wrestling with a, his young child. Uh, and the father might uh, let his young child pin him to the ground uh, even though physically the father is much stronger and more powerful than his child. Uh, when he does that, the father is restricting the use of one of his attributes, his strength. He doesn't exercise the full extent uh, of his strength uh, in order to have a relationship uh, with this child, in order to do this. He voluntarily restricts the use of his attributes. He still possesses his strength, uh, but he does not use it. Now, we can see that physically a little bit more easily than we can envision that mentally. Uh, but I believe that's the best illustration of we have of the fact that Jesus, in becoming human, chooses to not know aspects of the Father's plans. As part of his submission to the Father, 
who is the divine planner and orchestrator of redemption. God, leave, God the Son leaves that in the Father's hands and uh, can honestly and with integrity and fully say, I do not know uh, because I choose not to know. Uh, I choose not to know things because I submit to the Father. Uh, I submitted to him in coming to earth. Uh, I submitted to him in restricting the use of all of my attributes. And I would ultimately submit to him even uh, to the cross. Uh, Jesus enacts God's plan, and he displays a humility uh, that is explained more fully in Philippians chapter 2 when he says he didn't hold on to uh, his place in the Godhead, but willingly submitted himself to become human and even to go to the cross. Um, Jesus says, I don't know the day and the hour. And he says this in the context of his answer to his disciples who want to know that answer. Uh, Jesus says, I also don't know. And we can wrestle with that as a theological problem, uh, but we should never stop short of saying this does reveal to us that it is not essential that I know God's plan in order to fully obey and follow him. Uh, and in fact, that God chooses to, do, to work in this way because he wants me to display faith and trust uh, in him. You know, as we're uh, talking about this, uh, the challenge of this, and uh, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the guys that I was talking to said, you know, why does, why does God make it so confusing? Have you ever felt that way about the Bible? Have you ever thought that way about Revelations uh, or Daniel 9? Why, why is it so confusing? Why, is, why does God try to confuse us? And uh, uh, I really, I, I ponder that a little bit because uh, why would God make things confusing? And I I realize in part that it, it miss, that question misses because it starts from the wrong point. It starts from me uh, rather than from God's perspective. Uh, and that's what we read in this passage. Uh, in fact, if I was going to illustrate it, I, would, uh, I asked this, this group of men, how many of you talk to your wife? And uh, gladly all of the married men in that group said they do talk to their wife. Isn't that a good thing? Uh, and then I said, how many of you how many of you tell your wife everything that you're going to do and when you're going to do it and how you're going to do it and why you're going to do it? Not one of them does that. Can you believe that? They wouldn't. Um, now here's the question. Is a healthy relationship one where a spouse says, I will trust you when you tell me when and how and why you do what you do, and then I will trust you? Or is a healthy relationship one that has communication, but trust even when I don't know all of the when and the how and the why? Uh, I would suggest a healthy marriage has wonderful communication, uh, but it also has this beautiful thing called trust and faith uh, in each other uh, that uh, allows uh, that reveals the confidence that we have uh, in each other. Uh, and I think that's what God does in Christ. Uh, Christ submits to the Father by not knowing the hours of turn because he fully trusts the Father. And he asks us to say, will you trust me even if you do not know uh, the future? Um, Jesus says, no one knows the hour, not the Son, but the Father alone.
Uh, then he gives three illustrations, and we'll handle these uh, somewhat quickly. Uh, he talks about Noah, he talks about two pairs of workers, and then he talks about a thief and a homeowner. Uh, first he says, uh, what, is the, what is the coming of the sun going to be like? Well, it's going to be a lot like the days of Noah. Uh, the days of Noah, uh, when people were following the natural rhythms of life, uh, but they were unaware. And in fact, I would add they chose to be unaware of what God had revealed. And so they were caught uh, by surprise. Uh, perhaps they believed what uh, Ecclesiastes says in chapter 1, verse 9, that what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again, and there is nothing new under the sun. Ah, sure, that crazy Noah uh, says that judgment is coming, but nothing like what he says is going to happen has ever happened before. We're going to be fine. Second uh, Peter chapter 2 says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Uh, he declared, he invited uh, folks, to know what is, uh, how to respond to what God was doing. Uh, but no one but responded, and only he and his family were saved. Uh, and Jesus says, that's what my return will be like. It is not that it is unpredicted or it's uncertain. The timing is uncertain, uh, but the reality it is, and God is looking for people to respond to what he has revealed. If they do that, they could be prepared, uh, but they are not. And so his coming will be a surprise to many. Uh, secondly, he talks about two pairs of workers, two men, uh, two men working in a field. One will be taken and one left. Two women grinding at the mill and one will be taken, uh, one left. Uh, this is a, a pair of verses that have spawned a whole genre of movies. Uh, how many of you are from the Thief in the Night generation? Will you admit that you're from, oh, it's a smaller group than I'd hoped for. Maybe the movie was not as effective as they hoped uh, it would be. How many are from the Left Behind generation? Or how many of you choose not to watch Christian movies ever? Uh, all right, no one will admit that today. Uh, uh, these verses for many have, uh, have, have inspired uh, many description of what uh, the rapture looks like, this moment in time that we believe 1 Thessalonians 4 teaches, uh, that when Christ begins his return, he will come, uh, he will resurrect those who are dead in Christ, and then those who are alive and remain uh, will be caught up together with Christ in the air and uh, will return to heaven uh, while God exercises judgment and draws the nation of Israel uh, back to himself. Um, this verse has inspired it. Although in recent years, I will say, there are many, uh, there are many students of the Bible who have, have questioned that interpretation of these verses. Uh, they'll say it talks about two men and two women, one taken and one left. And they've said, well, the, the taken, aren't the taken uh, not being raptured, rescued, saved, but instead are they not judged? Isn't that the idea of being uh, taken? And they said, this, this is not uh, a talking about the rapture. Now, I understand the logic of that. And in fact, uh, before this week, I even was probably leaning in that direction if someone had asked. Uh, but as I was studying and reading several commentators, they pointed out something uh, interesting about uh, this passage. Uh, if we're going to understand, we always start with the most immediate context in order to understand things that are, that are unclear or ambiguous in our minds. Uh, the root of the question is, uh, is, someone, is the one who is taken being sent for judgment uh, or for salvation? 
if this is picturing the rapture, then they are being taken for salvation, for rescue. Uh, if it is for judgment, then it's something uh, very different. Well, uh, what does the context indicate? Well, first of all, it talks about Noah. Noah is certainly a story that is about judgment. Uh, but when you think of Noah, uh, and you think of Noah and his family and the rest of the people on earth, who was taken from the earth and who was left behind? Was Noah taken or left behind? Noah was the one and his family are the ones who were taken uh, from the earth. They were rescued by being taken from the natural rhythms of life, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and rescued uh, on the earth. And so maybe it's not uh, completely uh, foreign to believe that this is talking about being rescued for salvation, to be taken is to be rescued. Uh, we also see this uh, just a few verses before, Matthew 24, verse 31, uh, when Jesus, once again, is talking about uh, when the Son of Man will return, and in verse 31, he says, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven uh, to the other. And Once again, uh, is the taken for judgment or is the being taken for rescue and salvation? The angels are coming to take the elect for rescue and salvation. Uh, I believe these verses, there are good reasons to believe uh, that the picture is of uh, a coming and a taking for a rescue. And it very well may be uh, a picture uh, of uh, the rapture that we see in these verses. Um, Jesus does not end there, though. He gives one more illustration uh, to understand this, this nature and the nature of his return and what it means to be prepared. Uh, he says, uh, imagine a homeowner, a master of his house, uh, but a thief is conspiring against him. And if the master of the house knows when the thief would arrive, uh, he would stay awake and he would defend his possessions and his family and his house would not be broken into. Uh, but he says, uh, the implication is, Jesus says, you don't, the master of the house does not know. Uh, in this passage is strange because uh, who is Jesus in this illustration? Is he the homeowner or is he the thief? He is the thief. He is the thief. Um, it's a different, uh, a different perspective. Uh, but the point of his story, the main point, uh, the main thrust, is the uncertainty of the return and the difficulty uh, it is to be prepared. Uh, there is no promise that there is no promise that that knowledge will be available uh, to the homeowner. Uh, but a desire to say that he ought to be prepared and that there is a way to be prepared. And that's what he continues with uh, in verses 45 through 51. It says, while the timing of my return is uncertain, the exhortation that Jesus gives, uh, both in verse 42 and in verse 44, is that you must stay awake. You must uh, be ready, uh, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The uncertainty of the time does not mean that it is impossible to be prepared. We ought to be ready. Uh, so what does it mean to be ready? Uh, well, uh, for some, uh, for some they believe that that means we must be an expert in uh, the end times chronology. We must figure out uh, every element. Uh, we become experts on blood moons and the red heifer and decipher the Bible code and 
the identity of the Antichrist and the preparations that are made for the second temple uh, and where they're hidden. And if we figure those things out, uh, then we will be ready for his return because uh, we, have, we have figured out God's plan and his chronology. Um, the disciples wanted inside information. Sometimes we want inside information. Always Jesus wants trust. Uh, is it wrong to try to understand prophecy in the Bible? Absolutely not. Uh, God gave us his word for us uh, to study and to learn, to learn about his nature uh, and his, how God interacts with us and his expectations for us. And so we certainly do study uh, to desire to learn and understand as well as we could. Uh, but we do not despair when we do not understand everything uh, because Jesus said knowing the day and the hour is not essential for being prepared. Uh, you do not have to be an expert on end times. Uh, and in fact, I would suggest uh, that some of that study uh, is motivated by a desire to have inside information and to have things figured out so that I can impress other people or develop an audience uh, for me uh, rather than provoking uh, or promoting trust uh, in Christ. Uh, there is a danger there. Uh, for Jesus, when he is explicitly asked, tell us about the hour of your return, uh, he gives clues and information. Uh, he explains some things, but he says no one knows the day and the hour. Uh, he's saying that it is not essential for you to know, uh, but it is still possible uh, to be prepared. Uh, and that's the second paragraph. Uh, Jesus gives an illustration of a faithful and wise servant uh, whose master is away for a period of time. Uh, this is a favorite illustration of Jesus that he's uh, shared in the, the parable of the talents in a couple of different ways, and then again here, uh, that describes something essential about the nature of the life that we live, uh, how we live today, uh, that we are, uh, we live in this world, uh, but everything that we have does not come by our hands, it ultimately comes from God, and we are stewards uh, taking care of it. Uh, so how do we be ready? How do we stay awake? How do we watch? Uh, I think Jesus answers this question in a contrast that he gives in verses 45 through 51. The contrast is between a faithful and wise servant and a wicked servant. Uh, the faithful and wise servant is ready for his master's return. Uh, the wicked is unprepared. Uh, the faithful and wise clearly sees that he is a steward, not an owner. Uh, the wicked is self-centered and opportunistic. He takes, uh, he takes liberties with what is not truly his. Uh, the faithful and wise servant serves others. Uh, the wicked servant is abusive. Uh, the faithful and wise servant shares uh, with others while the wicked consumes for his own benefit. And ultimately, the faithful and wise servant is rewarded uh, with greater responsibility when his master returns. And the wicked is punished and left weeping. Left weeping. How do we be ready uh, for Christ's return, uh, I would suggest that this passage is very clear. That, and the answer is, to be ready is to be about your Father's business. How do we be ready? It's not about uh, having an answer for every question in Daniel 9 or Revelation uh, in its entirety. Uh, but it is instead to be about the business that God left behind for us. Uh, 
I'm going to say five things are encapsulated, at least five things are encapsulated in being about our Father's business. Uh, first of all, it is to acknowledge that I am not the master of the house. That I am not the master of the house. Uh, Jesus starts with, he says, this is a servant. And his master has set him over his household and given him responsibilities as a result. Uh, and that means that everything that is at this servant's disposal is not his. Uh, he is a steward. He is designed to use it. My problem is when you've been a steward for a long time, you begin to think that my house and my car and my money and my kids and my life, they're really mine. And the unprepared servant, also the wicked servant, he acts as if it is his house and his money and his life. And they exist merely for his benefit. The steward always acknowledges that this comes from someone and I am managing it for someone else. In the movie The Lord of the Rings, there's a steward. Uh, he's, a, he's a smaller character by the name of Denethor. Uh, and if you remember those movies, uh, Denethor, the steward, sits on a small throne at the base of a large stairwell that leads up to the throne of the true king. And Denethor, uh, Denethor never steals, never sits in the throne uh, of the king. But... After a long period of time to being a steward, he is not prepared for the return of the king. Uh, he, doesn't, he would never explicitly sit in the throne, but he's not quite ready to give up the power that he, that he possesses, that he's been able to exercise for his life. Uh, he exercised that power for it, his uh, whims and mercy rather than always being conscious and aware that he is uh, preparing for someone else's return. To be ready is to be about our Father's business, and it starts with acknowledging that he is the master of the house, and he is everything that I have uh, is ultimately his, and I use it for his purposes and for his glory. Uh, number one, acknowledge that it is that you are not the master of the house. Uh, secondly, what does it mean to be ready? How do we be ready for his return? Um, I believe, secondly, Scripture would say, we must be prepared to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's obvious. It's simple. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe it's boring, uh, but it is not easy. Uh, Jesus left us, and uh, just a few chapters before, he told his disciples, and he tells us, uh, to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Uh, that's acknowledging true master of the house, but then he says the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, to be about the father's business is to care for others. We see this, the servant is the one who, he gives his fellow servants their food at the proper time. Uh, this servant that, that uh, Jesus illustrates with is the, is the master of his house until the master returns. Uh, but he is a master whose job is to serve and benefit others. The unprepared uses people for his own benefit. Uh, he's described as uh, beating his fellow servants. Uh, he thinks that people are there for his benefit uh, rather than he is there to lift others up and treat them more highly than himself. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 tells us to consider not just our own 
not just our own needs only, but also the needs of others. And sometimes it means putting the needs of others before uh, ourselves. Uh, this is difficult. It is hard to do because I am consumed with my life, uh, managing my affairs, affairs uh, managing my family. Uh, it's so easy to be wrapped up in this. Uh, but the reality is that Christ is our example in this. Uh, in the Trinity, in Jesus submitting himself to his Father in this life, uh, even in the knowledge of his return and to the cross, uh, Jesus says uh, to fully and faithfully serve our God. It is, uh, it is a life that treats the needs of others more as more important than our own needs. Jesus modeled it, and then he calls us to follow him. To be about our Father's business is to live as Jesus did and to love others uh, as much as we love ourselves. Uh, thirdly, uh, I believe to be about our Father's business uh, is to deny ungodliness and to live soberly in this life. Uh, I love those Bible words, those King James words. Uh, this one comes from Titus chapter 2, uh, verses 12 and 13, uh, a passage that... Uh, uh, that talks about how we spend time waiting for Christ's return. Uh, and its emphasis, once again, is not on uh, figuring out the exact time and season, uh, but rather, Titus 2 says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live soberly, uprightly, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul, in, in this letter to Titus, says, uh, while you wait, uh, while you wait for that blessed hope to come, renounce ungodliness, be self-controlled, upright, and godly. Um, the unprepared says, uh, the master has not come for a long time, and so I can do what I want. The prepared says the master could come back at any time. I want to be busy doing what I ought, uh, what he has asked me to do. You know, it made me think of my, uh, uh, actually my children once again. Uh, from time to time I give my children, by that I mean daily, uh, things to do when I'm gone. Uh, I say, you know, here are a couple of jobs that I would like to do, especially on summer, uh, on summer vacation. And uh, not now, but it used to be questionable when I returned whether those jobs would be done. And uh, some of you may have had the experience of, you know, coming home and saying, here are some jobs that I want to get done. And as you walk in the door, you see someone jump off the couch, run to the sink, and, oh, I was just getting to wash those dishes uh, that they were. Uh, that's, un that's unprepared. Now, as I said, that rarely happens in my family anymore. Uh, now the more common experience is I come home, and maybe there's a, still an element of doubt, and I wonder, will the lawn have been mowed in my absence uh, on this day? Uh, but it is an amazing thing to come home and to see that freshly mowed lawn in response to the request of my parent. And when I walk in the house, now my son, who's sitting on the couch once again, because they spend a lot of time on the couch, uh, I look at him, and I look at him very differently. I say, you know what? He listened to what I said, that what I said mattered to him. Uh, what I said caused him to act, even in my absence and not the threat of my immediate presence to get something done. And it shows that he cares about me 
and follows and obey. And so all of a sudden that relationship goes stronger because I was absent and still there was obedience and respect and listening. Uh, God is God. He doesn't always immediately judge us or reward us uh, for our actions. Uh, but he does it because uniquely in the absence of his presence, we have an opportunity to display faith and obedience and listening and care and attention uh, to his will. And when we do that, uh, it makes for a beautiful relationship. Uh, it strengthens uh, the bond and the depth of the relationship. And so, uh, in the absence of the master of the house, uh, we should be about his business, and his business is living righteously, not consumed by worldly passions, not given in to excess, not treating uh, those around me and the things around me as if they're merely for my benefit, uh, but uh, using them for his purposes once again. Uh, to be prepared so that when he does return, in that I'm in his presence, uh, I come with a conscience uh, that is clear and whole, and it deepens our relationship with him. Uh, deny ungodliness and live soberly in this world. Uh, fourth, uh, fourth, uh, clearly, if we're to be about our Father's business, uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, tells us a significant part of that. Uh, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, Go and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Uh, to be about the Father's business while we wait uh, for his son's return, is to invite others to become disciples, uh, to explain the glory uh, of the grace of God revealed in Christ, uh, to invite and even to encourage people to the point of decision uh, to follow him, and then to cause them to grow and to obey everything that he has commanded, uh, to enter into that relationship with him. Uh, to be about the business is, means that I cannot be consumed merely with my life, that a significant part of doing the Father's business is to be involved in making disciples of all nations. Uh, some of that we do corporately uh, as a church, uh, as we preach uh, the gospel on a, a Sunday after Sunday throughout the year, as we uh, do events designed to reach out to kids like a soccer camp or uh, a Bible study or uh, a men's group. Any of those things are opportunities that we're involved in discipling. This is being about the Father's business. Uh, Jesus is saying to be prepared for my return, uh, you need to be doing what the Father has asked you to do. Uh, that is to be his ambassadors and his representatives in this world uh, to bring people to Christ, to make them disciples and fully formed followers of Jesus. Uh, that is a significant part of what we ought to be about doing. If I'm to be ready uh, for his return, if I'm uh, awake and alert and prepared, uh, it means I have eyes looking for opportunities to cause people to come to know Christ and to grow uh, in their walk with Christ in obedience to him. Fifthly and finally, uh, and this one is also found in Titus chapter 2.13, uh, you'll notice that uh, in a passage that, that he says, because we received grace, in verse 11, it has appeared and it's brought salvation, uh, our response is to renounce things that are not in accord with grace, ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright. Uh, and someone somewhere is saying, man, that's a lot of work. Uh, God, it sounds like that's a lot of actions and works that we do. Uh, 
But then this passage bookends, it started with grace, and it ends with, as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, I think the fifth, fifth activity that God wants uh, from us uh, as we're doing his work is that we are eager for his return. Uh, he describes it as a, a blessed hope. It is a joyful and happy, it, it is blessing and goodness, his hope, uh, that he is returning and then we'll see the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, now that sounds really good in church, but it really is a reality test for most of us. Uh, it's a reality test of our emotions because we, I think we have to ask ourselves, are we eager for Christ to return? And once again, it's easy to say that in church, but often I find myself wrapped up in my dreams for my life, uh, for things that I would like to get or do, uh, my future plans. And those are necessary. They're part of the life that God has given us. Uh, but if those things overshadow and there is not an eagerness uh, for his return, and if my eagerness for my dreams for my life far outshine my eagerness for his return, uh, it is possible that I've lost sight of who the master of the house is, that his return is coming and certain, uh, and that it is blessed and that it is good. Uh, we ought to be eager for his return. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, when I was a teenager, and I was confronted with a, uh, an angry, I almost said his last name, an angry farmer Joe, we'll call him. Um, a lot of thoughts went through my mind uh, back then. Uh, one thought was, man, he could have just beeped his horn, and then we would have come and run him. Wouldn't that have been enough? I thought, can he understand that we're just passing the time, and we would get to him, we would get to him as soon as we were done with the important things we were doing. Can he understand our perspective? Isn't he awfully harsh? Uh, and maybe you come to this story and you say, man, there's some harsh language in Matthew 24. How is it that God uh, uh, could judge someone just for not being ready when he really hasn't given us all the information that we need or that we'd like to have? Um, the reality is that God's desire is not not for judgment. Uh, he said, I've given you everything that you need to do, everything that you need to know in order to live in a way that is pleasing to me. Uh, this is reinforced uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says, but you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. There's no reason for you to be surprised. You are all children of the light and children of the day. And then since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Uh, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, uh, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died uh, for us, uh, for that purpose. Uh, does God delight in judgment? He doesn't. He delights in faith. Faith that is seen that even when he is absent uh, or appears to be absent, that he is not physically present, uh, that his children delight in doing his will and are about his business. 
And when he returns, and he is returning, and he finds us faithfully doing what he has called us to do, he is eager to say, uh, come, enter my rest. Uh, you've done well, my good and faithful servant.